Hello and welcome to the Anarchy SF podcast, the podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. I am Eden Kupomintz and with me is... Yanai Senet. And I think we're still self-similar, even though... This is a book that kind of disorients your self-similarity. Yeah, we're doing Philip K. Dick, so it might be best not to jump to conclusions regarding our own identity. Yeah, so if you didn't listen last time, why didn't you go and listen now? We are going to be discussing Philip K. Dick's Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, but actually we'll just use that as a platform to discuss Philip K. Dick in general. A short disclaimer... Philip K. Dick is maybe my second most favorite science fiction author of all time, only behind Ursula Le Guin, which we have mentioned multiple times already. I am absolutely in love with everything he did, but I am very much aware that not everything he did was at the same level or even good. I think he wrote in a time where, and we'll get a bit into it soon when I do my like biographical intro, he wrote in a time when pulp and writing lots of stories and selling them was the main way to make a living as a science fiction author. And yet, with all of his limitations and all of his weaknesses, I still think he is one of the most important authors of the 20th century. Yeah, I think what I really like about Philip K. Dick is that his books always try to do something. And Mm -hmm. it's not sort of like, let's enjoy the fantasy of having a lot of technology we don't have yet. It's, yeah. it's always doing something else, and we'll get into the themes, and those are, like, my favorite themes in anything. And I just want to yeah. say, I can't ignore the fact that we're recording this during, like, the social isolation period of coronavirus, right. which is such a Philip K. Dick kind of thing. So let's make yeah, sure that we sure. get back to that. Yeah. So I think with, and I'm going to call him Philip, I hope that's okay, as if we're good friends, because calling him Dick is a bit weird. And usually, like, people address him by his first name, which is interesting. So I think with Philip, more than any other author that we have discussed, his biography is super important. And the first thing that's really interesting about his biography is that he was born in 1928, which means that by the time that he was an adult and writing science fiction, he was very much of the golden age era of science fiction, right? Like, he's a contemporary of Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, Clifford Simic, all of these like masters, Ray Bradbury, and yet he is nothing like them. Almost like he wrote in a different universe with different science fiction. Yeah, for sure. Like an alternate timeline where science fiction was a lot weirder. And I think it's interesting because he usually gets lumped in into the new wave of science fiction, but he predates the new wave by like 30 years. Some of his works were written 30 years before the new wave. And then you look at people like Harlan Ellison or Samuel Delaney or these people who try to write weird science fiction inside of the new wave. And it's really, really fascinating how much Philip K. Dick was weirder and more avant-garde than they are. Not to say better, although I think he was, although those are two great authors that I mentioned, but just how weird and groundbreaking he was. And that's something you constantly, or at least I feel that I constantly need to remind myself how early he really was. Yeah, and just to latch on to that point, when you see the movie adaptations of a lot of his books, you see how the people mm-hmm. adapting those movies want to, like, squeeze him closer to the Golden Age. Like, they put more of an emphasis on, like, new technology and stuff like that because, like, they feel like it's a really important part of the aesthetics. Where in a lot of his yeah. books, the new technology is, like, really in the background and it matters in very specific ways. 
I don't know. I find yeah. like he's a fascinating like outlier of the science fiction tradition. Yeah, and it's interesting because he wrote a lot about being an outlier, right? Like being out of time and out of space and not belonging where you are and being very weird. And that, of course, also manifested in his biography beyond just the dates he was alive in. He was in California during the great like student, not uprising because it never got that far, but agitation and unrest. And then, of course, later on, he suffered a very infamous psychiatric breakdown, which was probably related to him taking a copious amount of psychoactive drugs in the 50s, about which he constantly wrote. So if you don't mind, I know you've heard this story a million times, but if you don't mind, I'm going to tell the, like, the story of that breakdown, because I feel like it's very important yeah, to definitely. understand a lot of his books. And actually, he wrote Flow My Tears the year he had this breakdown. So in 1974, Philip K. Dick came back from the dentist office where he was medicated with what was back then used as an anesthetic, Mm -hmm. which today we no longer use because we know it's like related to a bunch of really psychoactive drugs, including the truth serum, by the way, which is a real thing. And he was at his home. He was feeling pretty weird, but nothing unusual. When there was a knock at the door, he went to open the door. And there was like a delivery woman there, like UPS or something like Mm -hmm. that. And she had a fish pendant. So for those of you who are unaware, that is one of like Christianity's oldest symbols, where the alpha, the letter alpha, and the shape of a fish come together to denote Christ, right? Because Jesus was a fisherman, the alpha and the omega, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. So he kind of, he was like dazzled by the pendant. He felt there was some sort of like spiritual meaning to the event. He took the package and then he sat down in his chair and and this is his account. A pink beam of information struck his forehead from outer space and downloaded an insane amount of data into his head. He kept having hallucinations. He saw uh, colors on the wall that he described like a Kandinsky painting. And he described other phenomena which today we can associate with low GABA levels in the brain. GABA are like acids that your brain needs to keep functioning and that is often a result of long-time lsd use which philip k dick definitely did but that kind of like changed his career and started maybe the third phase of his career where he tried to make sense of his experience that he saw as religious he became agnostic that is someone who believes that this world is a lie not actually created by god and that God keeps trying to invade our reality and wake us so, up from the prison that so we're in. Ju- yeah. just to be clear, you're not saying that he became agnostic. He became agnostic. Yeah, sorry. A, agnostic, yeah. Not, from Gnosticism. That's spelled, so, like that spelled G-N-O and the rest. Yes, and the rest, yeah. So then he used science fiction to try and grapple with, the, with these visions. And he wrote Vallis and the transmigration of Timothy Palmer, or Palmer Eldridge, sorry, and other books after that where he tried to describe his experiences. And that's when things got really weird, right? He talked about like, well, Vallis, vast active living intelligence system, which is a satellite that is also God that is orbiting the planet. And that's what beamed the pink information into his brain. And that information allowed him to, by the way, this is real, this is like corroborated, he diagnosed his son with a hernia that no one knew he had. And he also had, the, I don't remember the technical name, but when you start speaking languages that you Tons. didn't know previously. 
Yeah, not speaking in tongues. He started speaking ancient Greek. So he claimed. There's like a name for it. And so on and, and, and so forth. He wrote some of his most famous and successful works after this episode. He wrote A Scanner Darkly and Valis and Blade Runner. Well, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep that later became Blade Runner. And he actually died from a stroke, a mini stroke. And it is suspected that he already had one during this episode. The year that Blade Runner was released, before Blade Runner was released, right? before he could see his big commercial success. So what you're, what you're basically um, saying is that he's the good universe version of Elrond Hubbard. <laughs> Actually, there are a lot of comparisons between the two, right? Because they also had not a similar kind of life, but something in common. They were both very charismatic, but very problematic individuals who had some sort of self-destructive streak. And yeah, did a sort of like pulpy, over-the-top science fiction. So it's not the first time that I've heard Elrond Hubbard's name mentioned with Philip's name. But obviously, like, he was a million times better than him and not a hack, <laughs> which is important. And the last thing I want to say is that he was also, he was married a few times. And he has a few sons and daughters. And one of his daughters is the caretaker of his estate. Mm-hmm. And you can thank her for the fact that, like, 95% of all Philip K. Dick adaptations are at least good. Some of them are bad, but they're very rare. And that's the last thing I wanted to say. In case you don't know, Philip K. Dick has changed Hollywood entirely. And I'm going to start with the movies that are adaptations of his work, but his influence actually stretches much, much, much further than just his adaptations. So as far as adaptations, obviously Blade Runner, and then the sequel, which stays very true to the source material, yeah. right? Even the sequel. Minority Report with Tom Cruise. Uh, Scanner Darkly with Robert Downey Jr. as he was starting his comeback. The Adjustment Bureau with Matt Damon. I, I don't think I saw Man in Scanner Hi- Darkly, the film version. Of course you did. It's the animated one. Oh, it is the one. animated one. Okay, so he's just... Okay, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert, Robert Downey Jr. and um, Woody Harrelson and Winona Ryder. And then The Adjustment Bureau with Matt Damon, underrated movie, it's quite good. And then The Man in the High Castle became a television series by Amazon Studios. But as I said, that's only like the start of his influence, so think about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Might as well have been uh, written by Philip Yeah, we should mention Total Recall, even though, though that was kind of a... Oh, Total Recall. Not so true yeah. to the source adaptation. Yeah, I like the original for what it is. The, the second the remake is terrible. I, I kind of blanked it out, so I forgot about it. Oh, by the way, he, he, he wrote Do Androids uh, Dream before his episode. That was my mistake. Uh-huh. So we said Eternal Sunshine, but also like Looper and a million more Gattaca, yeah. a million more like really big science fiction was influenced by Philip K. Dick. And I know I've said this is the last thing I'm <laughs> going to say like 50 times now, but the really last thing I'm going to say, and this is very important to me because it seems something that people don't, aren't aware enough, he was central to the science fiction scene in the west coast he had a lot of letters with a lot of correspondence with also Le Guin. he knew tim powers and other science fiction authors in that circle samuel delaney and others and he was extremely influential lots of lots of writers cite him as one of the earliest influences on them and you can understand because we talk about the timeline how that is right yeah how all these new wave authors were actually influenced by philip k dick that's it yeah for the intro <laughs> yeah so, so Eden likes to geek out about, about Philip K. Dick, but that's not the only reason I think we need to start with Philip K. Dick in general. Another reason is that when we get into the book, 
this book breaks some Philip K. Dick conventions. So to understand mm-hmm. this book, you sort of need to understand Philip K. Dick, and then you need to understand how this book kind of differs from most of his books. I don't recommend this book as the first Philip K. Dick you read. I'd much more recommend that you read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Even if you've seen Blade Runner, the movie is good, the book is good, both should be consumed. And A Scanner Darkly, also like a really good book. And then after you read those, this book sort of shines in, in its own uniqueness. But here mm-hmm. we want to like be standalone. So I'll, I'll say my first point. So my first point isn't really about the book. It's, it's about Philip K. Dick in general. And it's a part of Philip K. Dick's, like my head canon about Philip K. Dick's life, which is we know <laughs> that Philip K. Dick studied philosophy. And I also know that he appreciated Kant because he quotes Kant in one of his books. He just like puts a, a Kantian yeah. point in, in someone's, like someone actually cites Kant in the book. And yeah. And also he cites Freud and Nietzsche and Jung and Descartes. And he was very well versed in philosophy and philosophy of religion. Yeah. So my specific angle on, on Philip K. Dick goes through Kant. And the way I imagine it is an important part of Kant's metaphysics is this distinction between the nomina and the phenomena, where the nomina mm-hmm. is the things as they are, but we don't really know the things as they are. We only know the phenomena, the things as they are perceived. So we can't, like, it's, you know, the matrix is the best example. Like, we can't know if we're in the matrix. We can't know if, like, everything we perceive is just, like, skewed in a way. It doesn't have to even be, like, maliciously skewed. It can just be that our perceptions have nothing to do with, like, the things as they are. So I imagine, like, Philip K. Dick sitting in a classroom, listening to, like, this point, and everybody being like, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm, and he's, like, grabbing his head and, and, like, no, that's, that's <laughs> insane. Like, I mean, not no, like it's untrue. He believed that, but he believed that it had like far-reaching consequences for how we live our lives. So yeah, every book by Philip K. Dick, I feel like plays on this tension. He thinks that we live in a very delicate balance between the nomina and the phenomena. We sort of, you know, our perceptions do just enough to sort of assure us of how the world is. But like, a lot of things, specifically drugs and technology, can upset that balance. And once that balance is upset, everything goes. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think I don't know if he read those works or if he was just of the moment and didn't need to read the works. But he's, he, he has a lot in common with Baudrillard and the rest of the French like postmodern tradition, which is post-Kantian, yeah. right? Like they talk with Kant, even some of them that don't like him and some of them that do, they all are in relation to his ideas. And that, that's one of the reasons that Philip K. Dick deals a lot with simulation and simulacra and the inability that we have to access reality. Because if you think about it, like the postmodern idea, the one idea you can latch onto as a stable idea in postmodernism, which is kind of like a contradiction, but not really, is that we don't have access to reality unmediated by, by power, right? All of our perceptions are mediated by something. And with Philip K. Dick, that's always the case. So in this case, and here we can get into the synopsis of of the book, we follow a TV star. And and that's my point about Simulacra, right? There's a lot of TV and camera tricks in all of his writing. So let's let's Um, shortly synopsize the book. Is that a verb? Yeah. Did I just... I don't... I don't so, think so. Synopsize, <laughs> let's, maybe. Let's just give a, a quick synopsis, because I think there isn't... Yeah. Like, a synopsis would be very short. It's basically... Yeah. 
and this isn't spoiler territory because this is like the first pages of the book, you have a, a TV personality, very popular, who everybody seems to forget, and he also loses every document that proves his existence. So it's like, he remembers who he was, and those memories are corroborated by like the people that he can interact with, and like he knows things about them, so he wasn't just like dreaming his life. But nobody remembers him, and he has no documentations to prove who he is. And that's like the setup. Yeah. And basically, it ends with us sort of discovering why that happened, and that's pretty much it. And we'll get into like how, like what Philip sort of fleshes out through that. But that's the premise of the book. Yeah, and and from here on, it's like spoiler territory, yeah. right? Because we do need to get into what what happens. So, to to jump off your point of like the Kantian nature of of Philip K. Dick's thought, I I, I truly believe that that's very true, and that he was uh, influenced by him. And I think. One of the things that it leads us to is, and this is true for almost all of Philip's books, is the unreliable narrator, right? Because if you think about Kant's idea of the distinction between the nomina and the phenomena, it means that we're all unreliable narrators, right? If someone approaches me and asks me to tell the story of my life, I can't actually tell him the story of my life. Like, forget his limitations. My limitations prevent me from remembering those experiences properly and experiencing them properly in the first place. So usually with unreliable narrators, they're lying to you, right? That's why they're unreliable. But in Philip's case, they're just people and they have very limited perceptions of the world which they inhabit. And with Flow My Tears, it's especially true. And that's one of the reasons that the book is so confusing because the protagonist has no idea what is happening, right? Like. Compare it to do androids, well, sure, there's something happening, but the characters are experts, right? They have a trade. They know what they're doing. Here, Taverner, which is the protagonist, he's just a TV personality, right? Yeah. What I I really like about Philip K. Dick's use of an unreliable narrator is that usually I feel kind of betrayed with an unreliable narrator because it feels Mm -hmm. like starting me off with a bad point of view is sort of cheating and not very representative of my experience of reality. But what Philip K. Dick helps you feel is like, you know, you know all the reasons for the unreliability. It's not unreliable because like, you know, you, you're in the matrix and like they can just decide that everything was just like created by this external. No, like the world is just as it is. But Philip K. Dick, through the psychology of the character, through its use of drugs, through the use of other characters of drugs, can just like tell you like look how easy it is to destabilize our perception of reality yeah and i think that feeds really well into into my first point which is the police immediately need to grab tavernal right and the first thing that they try to do like this deputy mcnulty right which is funny because that's the wire that's the name of the guy right he needs to know who this guy is that's the first thing that he does who are you and he misidentifies him and then later on the the police general buckman that's his main problem with with taverner right who are you and he doesn't believe him that he doesn't exist right and i think in this book and in other books Philip wrote a lot about power, yeah. right? And like political power and police power. And he kept making this point that power has to know what reality is. Like power can't be Kantian. 
it can't say, okay, well, there's some facts and I don't really have access to those facts, so I'm just going to have to live with it and kind of, I don't know, whatever, try to be ethical anyway. The, the police and the military and the state have to know what is real and what isn't real. They have to know what you're called and where you live and who you are. Otherwise, they cannot exert control, right? Which is a classic postmodernist idea. Yeah, and I think conversely, the people who get to authenticate and sign documents and assert what is real hold a special kind of power, which is just the converse of the point. Yeah, and I think that once you fall off the map, right, like you disappear from the grid, in all of Philip's books, there's power in that, right? Because then you become an unknown quantity. And it lets you kind of like break free of who you are and your limitations. But the second that you do that, power is going to try and come in and categorize you. I think that was actually done super well in Denis Villeneuve's sequel to Blade Runner, right? Where there's this constant question of who are you? Who are you? Are you a replicant? Are you a human? Are you an AI? How are you real? And the release of the character at the end of the, I don't want to spoil the movie, but the release is, it doesn't matter. I, I can be something abstract. I can be something obscure. And again, think about like a scanner darkly, right? Well, the question is, do our surveillance devices actually give us an accurate picture of the person being surveilled? Yeah. So I think you can find all of these ideas in like, as you said, a weird different form in Flow My Tears. Uh, being one of Philip's most like bizarre books. And I think that's what I like about the ending, because I don't think we actually know why all of this happened. I mean, we get an explanation, but it's such a bullshit explanation. So Yeah, like, I always the thought... is basically yeah, that you someone can, else yeah. took a drug, and that drug was so powerful that it changed all of reality around this guy. Like, Yeah, and it's like... Okay, so Philip K. Dick doesn't know how to finish stories. It's like a joke and a trope, and it's like a thing. All of his stories have, like, not all of them, but most of them have really abrupt, bad endings. Okay, I'll go even deeper, and we've said this before. I don't think that Philip K. Dick was a good writer as a, as a literary figure, right? He had a very abrupt and sometimes even a basic level of vocabulary, I think, um, and he describes things in, like, really repetitive terms, and he doesn't know how, like, structurally tie in a story. And Flow My Tears is not even the worst example. If you read something like Game Players of Titan or And Now Wait for Yesterday, like the the, the structure is all over the place. I just as as long as we're we're saying problems with Philip K. Dick, one of them is that he can't write female characters. Oh yeah, yeah. He was a huge uh, yeah. I don't know if he was a misogynist, but I mean his his female characters are either sort of vain or naggy. Like that's sort of their two attributes. And I mean that's a huge problem. But I think just about the repetitive nature and the basic language, I feel like that's a, a flaw that sort of becomes a strength for him. Like the misogyny is just misogyny. But I, 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 again, I don't know if he was a misogyny or he just like didn't know how to write women. But yeah, he. so the basic language and the repetitiveness give you a baseline feel of like, this is just reality. This is just like day to day. And then it all goes crazy. Like that's, that's the advantage. Yeah, I think his strength was like, this is might might be a weird thing to say, but what episode better than to to say weird stuff? Um, I think he was there was something quintessentially American about him in the way that he wrote the average Joe, yeah. right? Just just more people. And okay, Taverner is like a TV show, 
a celebrity, which is a very American character. But his other characters as well are like mechanics and people who own stores and journalists and like common people. And he was very good at writing their anxiety. I think because he was them, right? Like, yeah. Philip K. Dick, remember, he died like four months before Blade Runner was released. He, he was never rich. He was never well-to-do. Um, he had multiple divorces, as we said, which are expensive things. He lived in like a simple house in Berkeley in California. I mean, and he made I mean, do. The most terrifying thing about A Scanner Darkly is how exactly like autobiographical it really is which he explains in the yeah. intro and outro. Yeah, if you, you want to cry, just read, read A Scanner Darkly and then read the outro of one of the most devastating pieces of literature I've, I've ever read, to be honest. But bring it back to Flow My Tears, I think that following on this like simple line, I always love the role that the body has in Philip's work, mm-hmm. right? Because it's always... The transformations are always subtle. It's never like, oh, I'm a human, and now I am an eldritch being from (laughs) beyond, right? It's never like, I'm a werewolf or I'm a vampire or something like that. It's always like subtle, uncanny, hard-to-place sorts of things that happen to your body. Same thing with this story. There's the scene where Tavener meets this woman. What is she? She's like a debutante or like some some sort of like socialite. And they go and they do masculine in her apartment. And he, he goes, she goes to the, to the bathroom and comes back or he goes to find her and she's a skeleton. Yeah. Right? She's like immolated. And it's unclear if it's like part of the grander delusion that he's having or the delusion from masculine. But it's always physical. It's always something slightly wrong or morbid about you and your body. That actually happens more in Dr. Blood Money. Yeah. Have you read that, by the way? I think you think you no, have. Dr. Blood Money, haven't. Such a good book. There, it's like San Francisco. He always wrote about San Francisco in Berkeley in the Bay Area where he lived. It's like San Francisco post-World War Three, mm-hmm. and everyone's a mutant, right? And the mutations there are really interesting and odd and, again, like, embodied in many ways. And that ties into, you know, again, the postmodern idea. I think we spoke about it last time as well when we spoke about Akira of Biopower. Right. Yeah, and I mean, we talk about a lot about embodiment, and like we like these kind of authors that have something to say about the body. And there's definitely something about body wholeness. The sort of sort of the beginning of all of this trouble is basically an attack on the character, where he's invaded by this weird parasite. Yeah. So I, I just want to connect to your er- earlier point about sort of the the need of power to. I mean, unless you have more to say about radical embodiment that I should... I, ju- I just wanted to talk about the fault. The, right, right. You wanted to talk about the fault. Let's talk about the fault. I have to talk about the fault, okay? If we're already talking about embodiment. So for the last, like, 10 years, ever since I read Flow My Tears, the, I have a lot of rants in, like, my repository that I, like, pull out, you know, when I drink too much or whatever. And one of them, one of the special ones, is the fault. So <laughs> uh, General Buckman... The, the police commander-in-chief, I guess, whatever. He's a really important character, right? Like, a lot of the book is about him. Like a lot of Philip K. Dick characters, he has a stereo system, which Philip always wrote into his books because he loved his stereo system. And he listens to music. And that's where the book gets the name, right? Flow My Tears is a very, 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 very famous piece of music by John Doland. Check out Sting's version of it. It's actually oh. pretty good. And he's sitting in his office 
and he's reading a report, and then Philip says that he farts silently. And then the narrative moves on. It is never mentioned again. It has no impact on the story. It has no impact on the character even. And for years, that sentence has been driving me crazy. Like, why did Philip K. Dick write that the character farted? Okay, it's not that I think there's something like bad about farting, but there isn't even one, anyone in the room for like to smell the fart and be grossed out. The character doesn't even comment on it in internal monologue. And the best theory that I have is that when Philip wrote characters, he like stepped into them, right? He like felt them, and you feel it in other parts of his writing as well. Like, he could feel their pain and what was going on for them. And then when Philip was writing, he farted. And he wrote it into the book as Buckman was <laughs> being like that. written. That is, that is my theory. It can be totally wrong. It doesn't matter. But I think it's such an interesting moment. And this part of these characters always have bodies that act and are acted upon. And when you combine that with what I said about the average Joe, they're just people. right? They get hungry. They get high. They fart. They have sex. They die, they get wounded, and it's never like Arthurian, right? It's never like, oh, this wound is a fatal wound and I shall bear it bravely. No, people just die. Yeah, I think there's a sort of risk in science fiction. Some science fiction books fall into the trap of becoming like a series of conversations that are like pseudo-philosophical yeah. uh, about reality in general and what we know about it and everything. And it all becomes yeah. so much ideology, so much like ideas just floating around in space. And I mean, there's just something about like this character thinks about like, I think it's after he, you know, contemplates like his relationship with his sister and how fucked up it is. And like, just like how he thinks about authority and power and society. And, and then he just farts because he's also a person. I, I mean, it, it is. Yeah. There are points in a book that just like, refocus you if your mind starts to wander and it all starts to like come together and be just like the same thing you know everybody has this experience of like you read a paragraph and at the end of the paragraph you're like oh i haven't actually read this paragraph i just like my mind yeah i gotta go back yeah this sort of sentence is is one of the things that will make you just like wait like this is not like (laughs) this is not like anything else like what what the hell is going on here Uh, and it's so sudden it is it is just amazing going back to the theme of the police and their need to know the truth and sort of <laughs> police the truth. There's, I think, something really interesting that Philip K. Dick comments on, and I think it's more in discourse today than it was in his time, but something about the transparency of power. Because the interesting thing is, mm-hmm. so we get this character, this character calls itself a six, because he's part of like a eugenics pro- genetic. There's a lot of stuff, by yeah. the way, in the background, like student revolts and like a sort of extermination of, of African Americans. Like there, there's a lot of stuff in the background that just like, which I also like. Like it's a world where a bunch of stuff happened, and then there's there's this personal yeah. story. But you know, it's all like uh, Philadelphia, yeah. right? Like all of those are like the events that are always in the background of. Um, Philip Kiddick's story. So there's a few, so, sorry to cut you off, just to get it out of the way. There's like a few Philip Dickinisms. Homeopapes is one of them. Like he had this idea for electronic newspapers that kind of predated Kindle in a way. So there's always those, there's always flying cars. He really liked the idea of flying cars. The anarchists in California usually go underground 
to form like radical societies. And the US government always collapses and turns out to be a sham. There's a, there's a bunch more. There's like a bunch of food that's always there and stereo systems. Stereo systems and yeah. music. Sorry, go on. So our character is sort of like high society and he really enjoys his higher society status and sort of contemplates it. And then when he loses all of his documentation, suddenly he can't walk two blocks because mm-hmm. there are checkpoints where they check your documents. and. He comments in, in the end that it was inevitable for him to be caught by police and charged with murder because, like, it gets to the point where he's charged with the murder of someone. And it was inevitable because once he didn't have those documents, suddenly, like, like you said, like, police had to take hold of him because he was so off their radar that he posed a threat. And then there's even, like, these... So it's illegal to be a student. Or so, like, the students are revolting, so they, like, put students in camps. So he's like, he's not even a student. He's like unmapped. He's below the lowest category because he's off the scale. And I think what's so interesting Um, about that is that when you come from a privileged background, you like all of these things are just so transparent for you. Like you pass by police and you you would. I never thought of police as a threat before I read it in fiction. Like police always felt like, oh, there's police in the area, so it's a little bit safer because, you know, they have guns and they shoot the bad people, right? And, <laughs> like, I think my first experience was, like, I, I had a friend, you met him a couple of times, his name is Amos, he, and he, like, has the outer appearance of a kind of weirdo, he's kind of unkempt, long hair and stuff like that, and he said to me, like, yeah, a bunch of times police just stopped me in the streets to search me for drugs, which, like, I know in, in the US it's, like, basically your life if you're not white a death sentence yeah but in israel it's it's more complicated it's not that common and it is like if you look like like quote unquote other you just get stopped a lot and like yeah. and it's just part of your life once in a while a police officer will just stop you in the street search you ask you to take all of the things out of your bag show show him that there are no drugs there and and you just like keep going right i yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that it's so hard to explain privilege to people, right? Because privilege means that you can move through your life and public spaces and private spaces without resistance or with very little resistance. Um, and the more privilege you have, the more you meet the image that a society envisions when it envisions, quote-unquote, a good person then the easier it is for you to never encounter power in your life. Now, the problem and the irony is that you're also more likely to one day wield power yourself. And therefore, you don't have empathy for the people whose lives you can destroy because your life was never destroyed by your power, right? And I think that's one of the big, big gaps between... um, intersectional leftist movements and non-intersectional leftist movements. Like if you're non-intersectional and you're a class reductionist and all you talk about is class um, and you don't recognize, for example, the fact that you're white or that you're a man or that you're cis, it's very hard to understand why an intersectional movement would put the same emphasis it does on those things as it does on class. Because you've never encountered those things, right? You've never walked into a mess hall or like a cafeteria and had everybody look at you and think in their head, what gender is this person? 
and you've never had like what Foucault calls, you know, the gaze, right? The gaze of power looking at you and stripping you. And I think the Philip K. Dick, not just in Flow My Tears, just to bring this all back to the story we're talking about, but elsewhere in his literature, does a really good job of explaining how the gaze feels and how it works. What, what does it feel like when power is looking yeah, at you? Yeah, and he, ex- he explains it in a way that's very approachable, I think, for people who had that experience because I feel like th- this point about like, what if you just lost all of your documents? It's not even an, a, like a strong essential thing. It's not even like you were charged with murder and now you're like an escaped felon or something. You just like don't have your documents. And suddenly like, if there are checkpoints and you know, there's this like, if you don't have anything to hide, you shouldn't fear police. Like Tavener hasn't done anything, but like there are checkpoints, just like checking who you are. And then suddenly he doesn't have like any identifying yeah. documents, he immediately has to go and forge documents. Like that's his first go-to. And then he becomes a criminal, like so quickly. Yeah. So I think I totally agree with that. But to take it one step further, I think what Philip shows, and that's another thing that I really liked about the Blade Runner sequel, is that when you're examined more because you're, all, you're already suspect, there is increased chance that your personality will deteriorate into actually the thing that they're afraid of, right? the more you're poked and the more power looks at you, the more likely you are to flip out in Philip's own terminology, to flip out, to go off the grid, to go insane. For example, a scanner darkly, right? You're always looking at me. You're always checking on me. Obviously, I'm paranoid, right? And Philip Kiddick, he used to love the quote and he would say it all the time. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not correct, right? Doesn't mean they're not following you. So same thing with Blade Runner 2049, where the test that they administer to Ryan Gosling's character, the psychological test that he goes under every day, actually end up driving him into the otherness because he's always being scrutinized. And that's also the case with the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch and Blade Runner, the original one, right? Like the second that people start to ask questions about Deckard, suddenly he feels this need to be on the replicant side and not on the human side. Right, because fuck you for questioning yeah, my belonging to this, you. Uh, just like connects um, really well to my <laughs> third point, which is the thing that is so special with Taverner yeah. as a uh, uh, Philip K. Dick protagonist is how cool, collected, and in charge he is. He doesn't flip out at any point. He's yeah. always so tactical, and he just knows what's going on. And at first, I was like. Where is the moment where this guy flips out? Like, why isn't it happening? And it, it just, like, well, I mean, he gets a little bit upset, right? It's a, it's a stressful situation. But he's very in control. And I think it's really interesting. Like, if you compare it to any other Philip K. Dick novel, the protagonist is just, like, going insane. And I feel like Philip K. Dick is saying something very subtle about self-identity. And he's saying, like... Let's question all of these mm. ways in which society defines our self-identity. And let's take all of those away from us. Let's take our connections. Let's take our documents. Let's take our job. Let's take all of that. And what he's saying is, you still have a core. You're still a person. Like, they can't... Like, that's something that is sort of stable and is a source of control. Because other Philip K. Dick characters sort of the, the insanity goes deeper than that. They lose their self-perception in, a, in, a, in one way or another. 
it always involves drugs or stuff. But the interesting thing about Taverner is yeah. that he's left with this sort of core of, of sort of self-understanding, self-belief, self-perception. And that allows him to navigate the situation. I mean, not perfectly, but in a, in a, in a more collective way. So I think, I think there's some kind of like weird form of optimism here about self-identity where self-identity is a sort of anchor for control. Yeah. I mean, I, I I agree with what you're saying, yeah. and I I don't want to rain on your parade, but I think the one thing I take issue with is that Taverner is a rare Philip K. Dick character, and I don't think that's quite correct. And I don't mean to like condescend or come down on you or something like that. But if you yeah. read like beyond his main works, you find this character creeping up a, a bunch mm-hmm. more times. The the best example is Galactic Pot Healer. Um, have you read that one? It was written for you. It's very interesting. It's all about Freud and Kant and Nietzsche and coming to terms with yourself. Extremely weird book. Um, surprise. Uh, it's like a future where no one needs to work because communism. Philip K. Dick was anti-communist, by the way. Um, he even like uh, snitched to McCarthy about uh, oh, no. Stanislav Lem. Stanislav Lem received the, I think it was the World Fantasy Award or the Nebula. And Philip K. Dick was convinced that he was a communist agent from Poland. So he snitched to the government and they barred Stanislav Lem from entering the US to receive his award. And then also um, Le Guin retired from the... Yeah, from the association because of that whole thing. The, one of the darker periods in Philip K. Dick's biography for sure. He wasn't, he wasn't a kind man, by the way. His spouses say the same, like he never abused them or anything, but he was a very difficult man. So reeling it back to Galactic Pot Healer, so no one needs to work, everyone is bored. And then this entity, like a super powerful entity from Titan, I think, okay. something like that, um, like contacts people for a thrill. Like they, the entity invites them to the planet to come and like live a better life. And it turns out that this character, this entity is like fighting against a dark version of itself and it needs all these people to fight this dark version of itself and it's all about like depression and the subconscious and all that stuff but the character in the book is much like Tavernal. like he has more breakdowns but he saves the day he stays calm and collected and he pierces like the veil of confusion in a very Nietzschean way and that character crops up again and again game players of titan as well and now wait for yesterday so it's a less common form of the Philip K. Dick protagonist, for sure, but I think it was a streak running in Philip's literature of, like, just what you said. The way through is to rally around our self-identity, to rally around our core, to know who we are and kind of execute it on the, on the world around us, right? And not give in to the pressures of society around us and what it wants to tell us. In that regard, and this will segue into like my last point. Yeah. A scanner darkly is really interesting because there the protagonist's insistence on himself is to the good guy's detriment, right? Because they want to recruit him into the program, but in order for him to go into the program and like show that they're growing this by the way, spoilers. Um, yeah. growing this flower that is used to synthesize the drug, he first needs to collapse, right? And he won't do it. He keeps hanging on. He keeps, you know, trying to stay sane to figure things out. And only when he lets go, does he win. Yeah. Right? Even though the ending is tragic and terrible. And that kind of goes into the discussion about drugs, you know, which is always in the background when you talk about Philip K. Dick. 
And I think it's very interesting because in one way it was of his time, right? The early 60s, psychedelia, the hippie movement, experimenting with like consciousness altering drugs and stuff like that. But Philip is not afraid, probably because he's one generation before that, to say, yeah, this has a lot of potential, this has a lot of power, but it's also terrible and it takes a terrible toll and you can lose yourself and lose what you care about and your friends and your identity. Of course, it's kind of darkly, but also here, right? Like the scene with the masculine and that it's deathly dangerous, lethal, right? So he says, yes, there is potential here. And yes, there's like psychonauts and you can explore your consciousness. But also people die from this, like all the time, which is a very interesting point that maybe science fiction kind of stopped talking about later, right? About how these substances have deadly tolls. And don't get me wrong, I'm not a puritan. I'm not saying like no one should do drugs, but you should be aware and cognizant of both the potentials of these things, but also the dangers that they hold. Yeah, I think drugs today are sort of like terrifying in how they've been neoliberalized. Like they yeah. have this very exact place within the system when you look at the, like the opiate crisis, where it's like these drugs are illegal and you can still get them. But if you're part of a minor- minority where we don't like, we'll just use that as an excuse to put you in like forced labor camps. And then like here are drugs that are illegal, so do take them and do get hooked on them so that we can keep selling. I mean, it's just they, like yeah. they're, they're just like terrifying. And, and in a sense, like, you know, Philip K. Dick is still screaming like, I told you, like I told you that this was coming. Yeah, and I think it's in a scandal darkly, but also here in Flow My Tears, there's this idea of, look, if, if I'm going to take drugs, there are good reasons and good ways to do it. I want to do it on my own grounds. I want to do it for my own reasons. But don't push it on me. Like the second that power and government get involved in like regulating drug use and deciding which, which drugs are dangerous or not, that's when things get really fucked. Because, as you said, they will always use those classifications, which, by the way, are classifications of knowledge, which is interesting with all the discussion about power and knowing what's real, to fuck over the people they hate and fuck over the people they don't like. So that's everywhere in, like, in Philip's writing. I keep mentioning in Now Wait For Yesterday, very interesting book, not not his best, but very interesting, where humanity basically picks the wrong side in an intergalactic war, and now Earth is, like, under an embargo and no one can leave. And the main character, like, gets his hands on this drug that allows you to go back in time, or at least, like, experience going back in time. And the, he, he, the, the character mentions that the drug is, like, a failed experiment by the government that they, they're seeking to offload because they have too much of it, so they, they're just selling it at low prices to the population. Yeah. So that's, like, the idea that Philip had about what happens when the government messes with drugs. And in Flow My Tears, it manifests in, like, the police's lack of understanding of what's happening and their lack of even like the drug that whatever person takes that causes the hallucination becomes a death sentence for general buckman because he doesn't exist yeah he only exists inside this hallucination and the book actually ends with buckman being terrified right like when the hallucination ends i will cease to exist right which is again this fear of the government from the potential that these things can have for us, right? Like to imagine a different world, a, a better or a worse world, but a world that they can't control. Yeah, I think like Philip K. Dick's oeuvre is like a very nuanced discussion on drugs where 
he's not like saying the government should regulate them. He's also not saying they're good. He's he's like here are like terrible risks of drugs, and also here is like why people take them, and here is like how we could just like be cool about it and not be so terrible. So I mean, if you think like wow, this is a one-sided position about drugs, just know that like within Philips, and there's a reason I think with Philip K. Dick that we all constantly mention his oeuvre because he wrote so much he wrote a lot for periodicals there's just like a lot of it yeah so in a sense he's like less of an author where you read just like i mean you can read one book and it's fine but he is a classification some of his parts yeah, like you get a lot from just like reading like his oeuvre and i always come back to like a little bit more of philip k dick and it's just like it's not like just another book it's like another angle of understanding into this like weird man's brain yeah for sure so maybe i'll finish with you recommended like the three things you should read first and i totally agree with that like what was it do androids scanner darkly and then flow my tears i think that's a really good um reading list for the first three so if you want to know like philip k dicks it's funny to say mainstream with philip right like his mainstream kind of appeal but then if you want to do less red stuff and you want to read something not from the accepted canon, I would suggest you read Galactic Pot Healer mm-hmm. and now wait for Yesterday and Valis. Fucking Valis. Yeah, One of the... A very hard book to read. Very, very... Talk about self-identity, like messes with your perception of self-identity and it's really anxiety-inducing, but it's a fantastic book. So, Yanai, tell me about something else that you have been partaking in that you want to shine a light on. So, I started playing The Outer Worlds, and mm. it's, like, not great. I mean, it's, it's sci-fi. It's a shadow of it's, an obsidian it's sci-fi game. It's sci-fi, and, like, it's kind of fine. So, here's my problem with it. It starts with, like, the promise of a critique of capitalism. Like, one of the first texts is, yeah. like... There's an obviously, like, anarchist guy, like, saying, fuck you, bootlickers, as he's, like, running away from the whatever police. But in a way, just, like, having a game that says a bunch of times capitalism is bad, it's basically critiquing, by the way, the Gilded Age. It's like, what if, it's basically, what if the Gilded Age, but take all the socialists and just freeze them? Like, they can't do anything, (laughs) so you just get the Gilded Age with none of, because, you know, the solution to the Gilded Age was like worker struggle that's how we got out of it that's why we're still like alive and not in yeah. like concentration camps i mean worker camps whatever like i'm doing air quotes so like yes i agree but then it's sort of like it's a form of what is actually like virtue signaling like not the the anti uh, progressive idea it's virtue signaling in the sense that yes you say capitalism is bad but you're so, sort of saying it as a marketing strategy because as a piece of art, you don't really have an interesting commentary on capitalism. And I can sort of compare it with, I've, I've just seen Hunters by, um, what's his name? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan, is it? I don't know, he's not famous. Yes, he, so. he did Us and... Oh, no, he's just the executive producer. Um, oh, okay. So Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele, so he's just the executive He's not a, okay. So yeah. in any case, I saw Hunters and the interesting thing about, so Hunters is like, you know, Jews fighting Nazis. And the interesting thing is, like, it's not just saying, like, Nazis bad. Like, everybody knows Nazis bad. But, like, it's saying, it's not even saying 
did you know that there were like Nazis brought to the U.S. by NASA? It's saying, isn't it interesting that Nazis were able to like integrate within U.S. society so easily? Yeah. And that's a commentary on U.S. society and on Nazism. Like that's interesting. That's saying something. Yeah. Whereas I, mean, I think just like yeah, saying capitalism is like this insane worker enslaving uh, philosophy is like yes. But you're not really adding something to the conversation, so I think you just like slap this on as a as a later added skin to just like you know taint like give give a, a tinge of color to your game. Yeah, I mean, I think it would go even more superficial than that. I think ever since Bioshock and games of that sort, studios just realized that like a libertarian, insane capitalist society is really easy to write stories in, and people like that aesthetic. I mean, people like that aesthetic full stop, you know, look at steampunk and all that stuff. But Outer Worlds is basically just like a shadow of an Obsidian game. The writing is terrible. The gameplay is whatever. It's fun. I played like 60% of it and then stopped. But I totally agree that there's like nothing there. The critique is if you take capitalism and you turn it up to 11, it's bad. But not, we've already turned it up to 11. It just looks different than how we thought it would. What do we do when actually saying things about that? And, And the second thing I wanted to comment on what you said is, just to go all out on the Nazi in America thing, like, the Nazis were in America, they almost won the presidency. Like, people want to forget Lindenberg and where America first comes from, but he was polling ahead of Roosevelt before the war started. He was the frontrunner to be the president of the United States. He was a Nazi. He was like a full-on America first, KKK, sleeper agent Nazi. Yeah, I want to so, read at a certain point uh, the plot against America, which is basically the book about, like, yeah. you know, Philip K. Dick has his uh, man in the high castle. What if Nazis in America? But this is like not science fiction. Like the plot right, against America is just like th- this could have happened like really easily. Yeah. Okay. Next week Wait, we do you, will do be. Do you have anything you've? Um. No, that's fine. I think that was. Well, you mentioned I mean, a bunch like... of Philip K. Dick books. <laughs> Yeah, that's enough. I Actually, I want to read Philip K. Dick. I have um, Solo Lottery at home. I should start that. So, next week, like you and I said earlier, we're going to do a Frost double whammy. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about Frostpunk, which is a video game about surviving like this climate change apocalypse. And we're going to talk about Snowpiercer, the film. And we will probably talk about Parasite by the same director. But we'll talk about climate change, surviving the apocalypse, capitalism, eating the rich. And diesel punk, right? Because yeah. that's the genre of both of these things. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so thank you for listening. Yeah, um, it's fun. I feel weird to say thanks to Instar because it's my band, but thank you to Instar and Greg for our opening music. And as always, if you want to read more quality science fiction with themes similar to what we discussed today, you can go to anarchysf.com where there will be a link to the podcast once I get off my lazy ass and do it. <laughs> um, and that's it. See you next time. See ya.